You may be seated, and I invite you to open your Bible to the book of Mark. We're continuing a journey through the book of Mark, and whether it's your first time here or your last time here, I think you'll find the teaching of Jesus in Mark's gospel to uh, be very clear, uh, concise. That's what Mark's gospel is like, and he provides for us a, a summary It's shorter than the other Gospels, than Matthew or or Luke or John. And so often he'll provide a a snapshot of of a familiar story. And and the way that Mark presents it really does show us a truth that that Mark is trying to press on us. His account comes from Peter, most likely. And it's Peter's version of his time with Christ that, I think appeals to us so much because he was a person like us. Peter and James and John, the inner circle of Jesus, have been featured in Mark chapter nine, first in the transfiguration, where they go up with Jesus on the mountaintop and see the glory of God revealed. And then as Jesus explains to them increasingly what it means to follow him, even to death and resurrection. And we're at a point in the Gospel of Mark where they still don't understand exactly what it means to be followers of Jesus. They're trying to figure that out. And Jesus has been instructing them, but their their spiritual dullness and blindness is still in place. Though they've made progress, Peter said just a, a moment before this, you are the Christ, when Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? Uh, they're still learning, they're still growing. And and it's there that, that we're entering into this section where Jesus is teaching about what it means to follow him. And the context is really important to understand this verse, so I'll help you see it. But let me just read the section we're going to look at today. It's Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. Uh, 40, 38 to 40, let's go to 42, 38, uh, Mark 9, 38. John said to him, teacher, We saw a man casting out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for there is no one who does a miracle in my name who will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Verse 41, for whoever gives you a cup of water in my name because you are of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. And if anyone causes these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a heavy millstone around his neck. This is the very word of the living God. The first time I encountered liberal Christian theology was probably college. I went to a public university, the Harvard of the Southwest, the University of New Mexico, I've talked about it before. And it was there that I probably first encountered liberal theology, which is uh, a newer you know, invention in some ways, coming from kind of a critical understanding of Scripture that tries to take apart Scripture and make it conform to modern preferences and ideologies. It was in a religious studies class. It was, I was taken as an elective and the guy teaching the class went to a, uh, a very progressive you know, seminary. I think he went to Princeton Seminary. And he was speaking with language that was familiar to me as a, as a Christian, uh, growing up in the church and then coming to faith in Christ at a young age and being concerned about the gospel and concerned about uh, telling people about Jesus. This was the first time I'd ever heard someone use Christian language, but not affirm those essential elements of the faith that I'd come to cherish. Uh, kind of a subtle denial of the authority of the scripture, a 
sort of condescending look at those who would take the Bible literally or, or believe that Jesus actually said what he said or that uh, his, his death and resurrection was exactly as is recorded for us in the Bible. And it didn't shake my faith to, to listen to kind of this liberal um, quote-unquote Christian to talk about how the Bible was useful and historical but not necessarily absolutely true. It, it did raise my awareness that there was a, there was a tendency in intellectual circles in the university to take the teaching of Jesus and when it sounded so constricting and narrow to make it wider and more broad and more acceptable, to take, for example, Jesus' teaching on hell, which we'll look at next week when he talks about unquenchable fire in verse 43, and to dial it back. That seemed to be what I was experiencing in this class, uh, religion class, that, that was just kind of assuming that the Bible had been handled in too woodenly literal of a way, and those with a tendency to be strict had misinterpreted Jesus and taken him too literally and, and looked at him too strictly and... And there was a way that was more liberal and free and all-encompassing. And at that point, for me, liberal theology became something that was detestable to me, something that I reacted to, something that I, as I learned more about it, and, and eventually in seminary, you, you get to study that kind of stuff, and you learn to how distasteful it really is. You also see how many people have their faith undermined by that kind of teaching. And I think that that's something we're all really aware of, to not take Jesus seriously, to, to undermine his teaching or to redefine his teaching as something that I doubt very many of us would fall into. And most of you are going to secular schools and, and you experience this kind of thing all the time. There's another tendency I want to talk to you about, and the reason I talked about liberalism is, is I think the only way to understand what's happening in this passage in front of us is to think about the opposite of that. There is a way not to be more loose than Jesus, but to be more strict than Jesus. And that's the kind of thinking that Jesus confronts in one of his disciples in Mark chapter 9. And so, because we always have our guard up against those who would undermine the teaching of Jesus or question the authority of Jesus or make us doubt the veracity of the scriptures, I want to make us aware today of a problem that is equally dangerous, but on the other side of this tendency to not land where Jesus lands. So on one side, a theological liberal could be far more tolerant than Jesus. And on the other side, a hyper-fundamentalist or a narrow-minded person could be more strict than Jesus. And so the title for this sermon is, Are You More Strict Than Jesus? Question mark. Are you more strict than Jesus? And I want to show you how this passage fits into Mark chapter 9, because I think that'll help you understand it. But I really want to focus on Jesus's fascinating exchange with his disciple in verse 38 and 39. Jesus's conversation with John is a conversation with a follower of Jesus that had a tendency to be more strict than Jesus was to be more narrow-minded than Jesus was. And I realize that this might be a, a category you haven't thought about before because normally we are dealing with people who are far less 
narrow-minded. They're, they're wide-minded. They're open-minded towards everything. All truth is, is uh, open for discussion. Everything is subjective. Everything is questions. But there's another tendency, and this one is among followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, to, to tighten things further than Jesus ever desired. This kind of thinking is entitled and rivalrous. It's intolerant and jealous. It has a grudging attitude towards other Christians. It's in loving and intolerant, and its overly strict nature makes its adherents suspicious of everyone else, exclusive and divisive, condemnatory and censorious. And that kind of attitude is condemned by Jesus himself. So I'm asking you the question today, are you more strict than Jesus? Not because I want you to be less strict than Jesus, but I want you to find in the one who identifies as truth himself, Jesus himself, the perfect balance of grace and truth that he embodies and that he teaches to his disciples. So to look at these few verses with a bit of an outline, uh, in the first point, we can call it Jesus rebukes those who divide his flock. That's verses 38 and 39, and I mostly want to look at those verses. But to help you understand where this passage is going, I don't want you to just know what those verses mean. That's Jesus rebuking those who divide his flock. But looking at verse then 40 and 41, Jesus re uh, then rewards those who care for his flock. Jesus rewards those who care for his flock, the bit about a cup of cold water in his name. And then finally, in verse 42, Jesus promises recompense for those who would lead his flock astray. This is the unifying theme of this teaching. Uh, some liberal scholars, speaking of them, will think this is a place where Mark just sort of raked together various teachings of Jesus and, and kind of cobbled them or quilted them with no particular arrangement. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this is exactly how Peter remembers Jesus instructing them in light of what happened on the mountain and then what happened when they came down from the mountain. I think this was a memorable moment for John as it was for Peter since they were in that inner circle. And I think they learned a valuable lesson about Christian love and exclusivity that's for all of us today. So, Let's look, starting with the last thing in this passage, uh, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. How this links to what we've studied before is that phrase, little ones. Remember, Jesus is in likely Peter's house here uh, in the Galilee region. And as he gathered his disciples after uh, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and then seeing the, the nine disciples that stayed behind uh, having a hard time casting out a demon, unable to do so, Jesus heals the little boy by casting out the demon in this great act of compassion. This is verse 14 through 29. And he gives them some instruction that follows that episode. That's verse 30. And Jesus is continually telling them the plan. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men, verse 31. They will kill him, and when he's been killed, he'll rise again three days later. Their spiritual dullness, verse 32, they did not understand this statement. They were afraid to ask him. And as Jesus is teaching them, he, he pulls them into this, this house, into a private setting. Verse 33, he was in the house, and he began to question them. What were you guys talking about as we walked here? And they went quiet because they were discussing which one of them was the greatest of all the 12, which is a hilarious discussion. And so he calls them to him and says to them, verse 35, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Jesus used a little kid, probably Peter's little son, 
in the midst of, of this household as an illustration, not of children, but of the childlike nature of disciples. Jesus sees his disciples as like kids to him. And so he uses this word child and this example of this child as one who represents those who follow Jesus. What he's teaching the disciples is to flip their understanding of, of significance and leadership upside down. They think that whoever is the greatest should be the most gifted and the one who's you know, got the most access to Jesus and will be given the, the highest position when his kingdom comes into fruition. But Jesus is teaching them that there's something unexpected about Jesus's kingdom. It's a first shall be last. It's a servant-oriented kind of a thing. Jesus will teach them in chapter 10, verse 45, that even he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for all. And so as he instructs them about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, he's using a little kid as an example of one who receives Jesus in humility, not in greatness, not in self-exaltation, but as a little child is taken up into the arms of Christ in verse 36. He says, this is the attitude of true discipleship. That gives us an understanding of, of why this conversation even started with John. But it helps us understand Jesus' last instruction in verse 42. Before he gets into the section about punishment for sin and eternal hell and, and what we'll look at next week, he talks about the danger of causing one of these little ones, one of these little children who are disciples of Jesus, to stumble. And it's a reminder that Jesus cares for his flock and he will threaten and punish anyone who leads a little one astray. It's an interesting place to think, especially in an age that rewards the authenticity of deconversion. Maybe you know someone or you've read somebody online who's going through a deconversion experience. You know, they were a Christian, they grew up in the church, they, they got baptized, they were part of a youth group, whatever. And now they've, they've come to a place of, of enlightenment and embraced you know, the full privileges of paganism, which is believing whatever they wanna believe. And so they do a very public deconversion. And one of my concerns about that isn't just the nature of apostasy and the, the believer who walks away from, from their confession, my greater concern is, is what Jesus is talking about in verse 42. When you speak so boldly and blasphemously of the Lord Jesus Christ with a, an idea of deconverting others, there's a stricter judgment that Jesus has in mind here. If you cause one of these little ones who believed to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. What we're seeing here is Jesus has such a regard for his, his followers, his disciples. He loves them all so very much that the maybe most susceptible, the most gullible, the youngest ones, sometimes young in age, sometimes young in faith, whoever they are, they're considered little ones. If they are led into sin or unbelief or doubt in their faith by another person, that person will endure a strict judgment. Jesus doesn't say what it is, but the implication is hell in the verses that follow. It's a good reminder that we should be quite concerned for the souls of the people around us in the church, especially for young souls. You know, maybe, maybe you're, a, you're moving on up and you're gonna be one of our rising seniors at UCLA and, and some freshmen will come and you'll look at your peers and you'll say, look how young they look. They don't even shave. No, nobody at UCLA shaves, but... Um, I love you. And I wonder when you look at those younger believers, if you have like a deep spiritual concern for them. Because I think that's warranted. 
I think that's what Christ would have you have. I mean, another example of this would be someone who, within the context of the church, leads another believer into sin. He talks about when you cause yourself to stumble and cutting off your own hand in the next verse, but there's a concern that you should never lead someone else towards unbelief. Never lead someone else towards sin. Never have a negative influence on someone's soul and faith. This is a concern of Jesus himself. And he threatens recompense, judgment, on any of those who would lead little ones in his flock astray. I start at the back of this passage because I think it'll help you understand why there's such an emphasis in understanding what Jesus said to John. So that's the third point, which we did first, recompense for those who would lead his flock astray. The second point is uh, verse 41 there in the middle. Jesus promises rewards for those who care for his flock. You see, it's also a concern for his disciples that Jesus is pressing here. He says in verse 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you are of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. One notable thing here at least, this is the first time where Jesus calls himself the Messiah, the Christ. Peter has already confessed it, but now Jesus is saying it himself in the privacy of this home to his disciples. But his larger point is anyone that, rather than leading someone to stumble, and that being a point of judgment from Christ, anyone who would treat with kindness, even a, an insignificant thing like a little cup of water will be rewarded by the Lord because of his deep concern for his disciples, for his flock, for his little children, his followers. And so in these two admonitions, Jesus is both warning those who would undermine his authority with his uh, precious disciples, with these childlike sheep, with his little flock. He's saying, don't you dare lead them astray, or it'd be better if you had a giant millstone, a big old rock tied around your neck, and you're chucked into the sea. That's how seriously Jesus takes the protection of believers. The blessing of believers is so important to Jesus that if someone were to just offer a cup of water in Jesus' name to them, they will be rewarded. Jesus' regard for his little flock is on clear display in the warning he gives to those who would endanger the souls of his children and in the blessing that Jesus would give to those who would bless the needs of his children. Do you see that this all is about how Jesus sees his own followers, how precious they are to him, how valuable, how dear. I mean, Jesus sees you when you follow him as his own possession, as his child. He sees you as belonging to him. I love that, that Jesus calls his disciples a little flock. And I think that that's a name we can all be mindful of in the way that Jesus sees us. He sees us as precious because he paid dearly for our forgiveness. He sees us as valuable because he's brought us into his family, adopted us as his own. He sees our faith as something worthy of protecting and guarding. And he sees those who treat one another with kindness and care as worthy of blessing from God himself. And so it's with that reminder of Jesus' deep care for his little flock in verses 41 and 42 that I wanna look at the main emphasis of this passage. And I think the thing that I want to bring out because it's so rare to talk about, I think it's, it's helpful for us to think about verses 38 and 39. It's a rebuke for those who divide his flock. A rebuke for those who divide his flock. And this is where our question, our pressing question will find its answer. Are you more strict than Jesus? John said to him, now, this is the only time in the gospel where John is mentioned by himself. 
That's different. John is the beloved disciple, the apostle of love, rightly named because of his contribution to the doctrine of love in the Bible, uh, the Gospel of John, the epistles of John, the book of Revelation, when he talks about losing your first love, the centrality of love from 1 John 4 that our pastor read to us this morning. It's right that John is called the disciple or the apostle of love. He was so known for his graciousness and his charity that he wore that as his name. But he wasn't always that way, was he? He wasn't always the apostle of love. Remember back in Mark 3, uh, John and his brother James, they were called bonangeries, the Aramaic word for thunder dudes. They were the, the boys of thunder and lightning because remember when they went to the Samaritan village and Samaritan village kind of didn't want them there and they said, Lord, very spiritually, shall we call thunder down from heaven upon them like Sodom and Gomorrah? What a great request. Uh, I would have loved to see them try. But they were willing. And Jesus, I think with a twinkle in his eye and laughing, uh, called them the sons of thunder. And it's a nickname that stuck. And so John has come a long way. This is the only time he's talking all by himself. Usually Peter's the one who says something that is worthy of Jesus' rebuke. But John is here, featured prominently. He was one of the three that went up at the Mount of Transfiguration, saw this incredible revelation of the glory of God in Jesus with Elijah and Moses and then only Jesus and only God's glory and the voice of God coming from heaven. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And then it was John who would have witnessed the failed exorcism of the nine disciples when they came down the mountain and the frustration that would have set in with the disciples. It was John who was part of the conversation about who would be the greatest. And in one of the most embarrassing scenes in the Bible, uh, it's John and his brother James and their mom, who's like hitting up Jesus for a higher spot or rank among the disciples and in the kingdom. So John wasn't always the apostle of love. He was sort of a bonehead and somebody who was uh, definitely rash and hot-headed and aggressive and wanted preeminence. But Jesus hasn't changed him yet. And so John says to him, verse 38, Rabbi, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons. This is related to the demon, failed demon exorcism the disciples had in the previous paragraphs, to Jesus' successful exorcism, to Jesus talking about his death and resurrection, to Jesus saying, you gotta receive the kingdom like a child. It's not about who's great. And so for some reason, whether this is a, a confession from John or maybe a point of pride, he's looking to score some points with Jesus. I don't know, but he says, Rabbi, we saw someone casting out demons, plural, multiple demons, in your name, in the name of Jesus, and we tried to stop or hinder him, and now we got a we going, which is, is safer. Uh, it's, it's him and his brother, it's him and his brother and Peter, maybe it's all 12, whatever it was, they tried to shut this guy down. We tried to hinder him because he was not following us. What an interesting thing to say. You see, John is concerned about who's really on team Jesus. And there's more than 12 disciples, you understand that. Jesus sent out the 72. There's larger crowds that follow him. There's lots who've, who've uh, seen him as the promised one of God. And so we don't know anything about this guy that the disciples tried to stop, except that he was an effective exorcist. He successfully cast out demons and he did it in Jesus's name. Now, there could be some rivalry there because the disciples were batting zero on the demon casting in the last episode. And so maybe they're feeling a little bit like, man, if we can't do it, why does random guy get to do it? Like, shut him down. He's not with us. He's not in the house. He's not part of the inner group. He certainly didn't come up with us on the mountain. 
You know, who is this guy? Uh, maybe it's a trademark concern. I have no idea. But they're, they're, they just don't like that this guy is working on Jesus's behalf, but not under their authority, their authorization. They're concerned that there's some unauthorized ministry in Jesus's trademarked name going on here. And he's far more concerned about the exorcist than about the exorcism. Far more concerned about who this guy is than about what is happening here. So what is happening here? Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been a proliferation of demonic activity in the Gospel of Mark, probably far more than you saw this week in your travels on the 405. And that's because, not because you, you, you don't have you know, Pentecostal insight, it's because there was a proliferation of demonic activity in Jesus's day. Certain periods in history, we, we've seen that, especially in biblical history, when there's times of extraordinary light, there's times of extraordinary darkness. And as the incarnation of the Son of God and his ransom of all mankind is taking place, there's an extraordinary amount of spiritual opposition rising up against Jesus. He demonstrates his divinity and authority by casting out demons. And so this was something the disciples were used to seeing, something Jesus had taught them. But they had not seen someone who was not part of the 12 involved in this kind of work, and it bugged them. They're thinking, who is in and who is out? They're thinking one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're narrow-minded. They're thinking in a small way. And they're thinking in a, a rivalrous way. You know, if you opened a smoothie shop, I know some of you may open a smoothie shop someday to sell your delicious smoothies to the people. I wonder how you'll view the other smoothie shops. I assume you'll kind of Look down on the juggernaut that is Jamba Juice. And you'll look, you'll look you know, down your nose at other smoothie shops with their CBD deals, CBD deal, CBD supplements. I don't know. That's how people think, right? You look down at these other cheap imitations. And I think it's that kind of mindset that the disciples were having, or at least John was having. Luke eleven fifty two says, Jesus is rebuking the, the scholars of the law. He's rebuking the Pharisees. And he says, woe to you scholars of the law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. You see, it's a kind of rebuke that Jesus had reserved for the Pharisees, who had made entry to God's kingdom narrower. Now, a group like the Sadducees made entrance to God's kingdom much wider. And I think what we're learning here is that we want to be where Jesus is when it comes to the narrowness of the path, the, the width of the offer of the gospel, the inclusiveness of gospel ministry. This isn't about only those who are in this tight-knit circle get to work for Jesus and serve Jesus and honor Jesus and glorify Jesus. And so this Pharisee-like mentality had somehow crept into the disciples' mind and they're not willing to accept those who are not following Jesus in the same exact circumstances that they are. Jesus gives a similar rebuke in Matthew 12, 30, uh, but it's said in the positive rather than the negative. It's about being for us or against us. And, and so John's Whole point is this guy's not on our team. He's casting out demons in your name and it's bothering John. And so what does the Lord say? Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not hinder him. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak in 
evil of me. Now that's a remarkable answer, isn't it? I think you have a lot of patience on Jesus's part here because he's simply reminding John that doing anything in Jesus's name is not the prerogative of just a few, but it's a privilege of all those who are in the kingdom. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Jesus is saying that wide is the way to him. What I am saying is that Jesus defines how restricted discipleship is. And it's plenty restrictive. Jesus has already taught the disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, they must take up their cross and follow me. He said that to follow him entails certain death, association with the one who will be crucified. But the tendency of religious people is to look at other followers of Jesus in a judgmental way and tighten up the screws a little too far and to say, mm, that's not the way we do it in our denomination. Well, I don't know where that guy went to seminary. He probably didn't even go to seminary. You know, the preaching at our church is better than all the preaching in the history of all church. Well, that's, that's okay for you because you go to a Baptist church. It makes sense since you were a Calvary Chapel guy. We have a tendency to look down on other Christians. And I think Jesus is confronting that attitude. And he's concerned that his disciples will accept all those who will follow Jesus. And they will, because in the book of Acts, the invitation will be broad. And all will be entreated to follow Jesus. And all will be concerned for having honor for the glory of Christ and the kingdom of Christ. And it won't be about position or status among God's people so that the most humble act of kindness from any follower of Jesus to any follower of Jesus will be rewarded and any attempt to subvert the faith of his followers will be punished. And so when Jesus says, do not hinder him, don't stop him because Anyone who performs a miracle in my name will not shortly thereafter, it's kind of a figure of speech there, be able to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. Jesus is demonstrating a wartime mentality. Jesus has been trying to press on these disciples that he's moving towards Jerusalem and certain death and suffering and crucifixion and eventually resurrection. Jesus has said the stakes couldn't be higher and the disciples are arguing about who's in charge around here. Is that guy official or not official? Where's his credentials? I mean, that's a mess. An attitude of entitlement, of rivalry, of intolerance, of jealousy, of grudging, unloving, overly strict, narrow-minded, distrustful, parochial, divisive, exclusive, elitist, uncharitable, uh, uncharitable, condemnatory, and censorious attitudes towards other followers of Jesus is condemned here because wartime changes allegiances and alliances. And if we were thinking in a kingdom-minded way, anybody that's anti-demons in Jesus's ministry is on the right side of things, right? I mean, if Jesus is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the kingdom of darkness and this guy is casting out devils in Jesus' name, I think we should be for that guy, not against that guy because he's not against us. He must be for us. Jesus isn't being undiscerning here. Jesus isn't being overly, unorthodoxly generous here either. He is being truthful. And the disciples desire to separate themselves from other believers because they think they're better than other believers is a dangerous tendency we could all fall into. 
our exclusive relationship to Christ, our particular ways that we worship Jesus in our church or in our denomination or in our particular sect of Christianity cannot be confused for the only way to follow Jesus. A deep-seated mentality that separates other believers from each other is a dangerous one. This is not a call for less discernment. It's a call for more discernment. More discernment. That you might discern things the way Jesus discerns them. Because in war, alliances are different. Your friends are strengthened because the enemy is the focused problem. Yes, serious doctrinal error must always be confronted. Jesus will confront his disciples' bad doctrine. And heresy is damnable indeed. But we must rejoice when the name of Jesus is glorified. I mean, if you rejoice when someone gives you a cup of water in Jesus' name, certainly you'll rejoice when they cast out a devil. This irenic, humble, wise spirit is not one that's easy to figure out. It's one that has been a blight on the history of the church. And I wanna end with an example from church history that I think will help clarify what's going on here. It's a lesson from the relationship of two famous Christian dead guys, one named George Whitfield and the other named John Wesley. You've certainly heard those two names. They met at Oxford and they were both sincerely interested in the Christian faith. Most everyone was back then. But they were so interested, they became mocked by the other students. And their little Bible study was referred to by all kinds of names. Mainly it was called the Holy Club. They were trying to be mean. They had other names for the Holy Club. They called them the Bible Moths, the Bible Bigots, the Super Rogach, I don't know even how to say that one. Eventually they'd be called the Methodists. And their concern, the Methodist concern, was that the Christian religion would be genuine, that it would be heart-worked, that it would be centered around the new birth, uh, a spiritual experience, actual conversion, rather than the trappings of the Anglo-Catholic church, which was common in England in the time. And these two men were both so crucial in the formation of, of what today we see as modern evangelicalism. And they began as co-laborers and friends in this holy club, and both of them a distaste for the, the trappings of ritualism in religion. It was Wesley and Whitfield that, that would come to love the, the doctrines of grace. But they understood them very differently. Both of them experienced dramatic conversions. Whitfield saved at Oxford in 1735, Wesley famously at Aldersgate in 1738. And as they both got involved in open air preaching, Wesley first and then encouraging Whitfield to get involved in it with them, they partnered in ministry, but simultaneously they grew in disagreement. You see, John Wesley uh, began to study and be concerned about problems that he saw with with Calvinism. And likewise, George Whitfield became concerned about problems he saw with the doctrines of Arminianism. And this became a, a significant theological disagreement between these two men. Because it is a significant theological disagreement, dating all the way back to the Reformation. Both men completely trusted the Bible. Both men approached the same biblical passages with different conclusions and different considerations. And as these 
this disparity in a theological difference occurred between them, Whitfield became a full-blown Calvinist. He embraced predestination and reprobation and, and perseverance. And, and Wesley, on the other hand, got deep into doctrines of free will, stuff associated with Jacob Arminius and, and uh, more concerned about uh, the freeness of the gospel offer. He, he also argued strongly against the doctrine of predestination nation and got into something called Christian perfectionism. And just to you know, let you in on the secret, I'm on Whitfield's side in this thing. But what happens between them personally is most illustrative, I think, of what's happening with Jesus's interaction with John. Their dispute, their dispute quickly became public in 1739. Wesley wrote and preached a sermon as he traveled around called Free Grace. It was a sermon against the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. And he preached it all over the place. And, and some of his friends, including George Whitfield, said he really shouldn't put it into print because in it he called uh, predestination a doctrine full of blasphemy. He said it makes the whole Christian revelation contradict itself. He said a holy God would be worse than the devil, more false, more cruel, and more unjust. I mean, this thing was spicy. And when he did put it to print, it was after some kind of division and some discussion. Whitfield, in turn, decided to start to tell people about a private conversation they had. See, John Wesley wasn't sure if he, should, if he should publish it. And so he rolled dice or drew lots to decide God's will. And in correspondence, private correspondence with his friend Whitfield, he told him that. Well, Whitfield decided to tell everybody he knew that that's how Wesley came up with publishing this sermon. And it made a deep division between these two guys. Ian Murray talks about this in his book on Wesley and those who followed him, if you want the whole story. Whitfield would later express regret that he exposed this private conversation. And Whitfield, in his part, was uh, pretty spicy himself. He was very critical of John Wesley's doctrine Whitfield said they preached two different gospels and denied the Wesleys the right hand of fellowship. Similar uh, thing had happened in church history between Luther and, and Zwingli. And, and as they became more and more embroiled in, in the things that separated them, substantial doctrinal questions, this debate became public. You see, evangelical Christians had enemies and a journalist writing for a magazine called The Gentleman's Quarterly, you can guess what country that's in, described their quarrel in print this way. The controversy has grown to so great a height that Mr. Whitfield tells his auditors that if they follow Mr. Wesley's doctrines, they will be damned, eternally damned. On the other hand, Mr. Wesley tells his congregation that if they follow Mr. Whitfield and do not stick close to him, it will bring distraction and confusion at last. Now here is oracle against oracle, revelation against revelation, and the God of truth in one is declared to be a liar by what he mentions in the other. For this these circumstances, it is very evident that they, Wesley and Whitfield, both are cheats, deluders, and imposters. The Roman Catholics, the high church Anglicans had a field day destroying the Methodist movement because of this difference between them. This story has a lovely conclusion. Because after many years of estrangement, Whitfield reached out to Wesley in several unanswered letters. And then a guy who had even worse doctrine than both of them became a kind of a conduit between the two of them and arranged a meeting to renew their, their personal affection and their they both adhered to the gospel. They both wanted to lead people to Christ. They had genuine doctrinal disagreements, but they had forgotten that they both worked for Jesus. This was not two competing smoothie shops. This is all one smoothie shop. 
Smoothies are the gospel in that illustration. (laughs) And they finally came to a point to rekindle their friendship in something they called mutual recognition. They couldn't work together. There were too many differences. But they could each acknowledge one another and their organizations as true Bible-believing Christians, and they occasionally would partner in ministry. And the sweetest part of it was this. They agreed that whoever died first would preach the other's funeral. And so when Whitfield died, Wesley preached multiple services in London, memorials to his friend, George Whitfield. And in that service, in that sermon, he said this. Let us keep close to the grand scriptural doctrines which he everywhere delivered. There are many doctrines of a less essential nature which regard to which even the sincere children of God, such as the present weakness of human understanding, are and have been divided for many ages. In these we may think and let think. We may agree to disagree. By the way, that's the first time that phrase was ever printed in English, agree to disagree. But meantime, let us hold fast the essentials of the faith which was once delivered to the saints and which this champion of God so strongly insisted on at all times and in all places. You see, there's no place for hostility or resentment among believers. We're all in the same kingdom, serving the same Christ, and we should rejoice when the name of Jesus is glorified. That's the lesson that Jesus was teaching John when he said, for he who is not against us is for us. J.C. Ryle said this. Men of all branches of Christ's church are apt to think that no good can be done in the world unless it's done by their own party and denomination. They are so narrow-minded that they cannot conceive the possibility of working on any other pattern but that which they follow. They make an idol of their own peculiar ecclesiastical machinery and can see no merit in any other. To this intolerant spirit, we owe some of the blackest pages of church history. Let us be on guard against this feeling. It is only too near the surface of all our hearts. Let us study to realize that liberal, tolerant spirit which Jesus recommends and be thankful for good work wherever and by whomever done. Let us beware of the slightest inclination to stop and check others merely because they do not choose to adopt our plans or work by our side. We may think our fellow Christians mistaken on some points. We may fancy that more would be done for Christ if they would join us and if all worked in the same way. We may see many evils arising from religious dimensions and divisions, but all this must not prevent us rejoicing if the works of the devil are destroyed and souls are saved. Is our neighbor warring against Satan? Is he really trying to labor for Christ? That is the grand question. Better a thousand times that the work should be done by other hands than not done at all. Happy is he who knows something of the spirit of Moses when he said, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets. Or the spirit of Paul when he said, if Christ is preached, I rejoice and yes, We'll rejoice. Father, thank you for your word and for this reminder to never be more strict than Jesus. In his name, amen.